As I've meditated this week on this message, as we continue our our series in the book of Esther, um, I was reminded over and over and over of something that my children said to me or to Deb hundreds, if not thousands of times. And I reflected on my own youth, and I don't remember one instance where I ever said this, but my kids said a lot. And it was just this simple phrase, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair. And it got to a point where I developed this long five-minute rambling, not stopping why life's not fair and you should be thankful and stop whining, you little brat. Again, I'm sure I never said that as a kid, but these two and their three siblings did repeatedly. Right, guys? No. Um, As we look at the book this morning, a book of Esther, chapter 4, God could scream out, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I'm tired of the way my people are acting. And the irony is, as a parent, we often treat our children in this relationship with this quid pro quo relationship. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do what I say you're supposed to do, and I'm going to reward you. You do right, you get blessings. You do wrong, you're going to get wrath. And in this book, we're going to see these two examples in chapter 4 where it looks like they're doing the right thing. But I'm going to suggest they're not. And there's something seriously missing with what they're doing. I've entitled this series, God, dot, 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 ruling from the shadows. Um, Have you ever walked into a room and somebody's standing off to the side and they're in a shadow or they're partially blocked and you walk in and you don't know they're there, you don't know they're watching you and then either you catch them out of the corner of your eye or they say something and it spooks you, I didn't know you were there. And they go, I've been here the whole time. In this book, we see that God's name isn't mentioned any time. It's not mentioned once in this book. There are no synonyms for God. And as we're going to see in this particular chapter this morning, there is no sense of his people crying out to him. For all intents and purposes, it appears that, that God has abandoned them and they have abandoned him. But we see over and over in this book that God is still ruling from the shadows. So let me just say this again before we pray and then read the passage. You could be someone who gets it wrong more than you get it right. And there is great news for you in the Bible. There's great news of comfort, of joy, Great news of salvation for us who continually get it half right. And Jesus says, you're mine. Let me pray. Father, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would teach us. Father, would you help us to set aside our thoughts from this past week or the busyness of this upcoming week? And Lord, would you through your tender spirit, supernaturally give us the ability to focus our thoughts and our attention on your word. 
Father, take anything that I say that is not from you and give us the ability to quickly forget that. But Lord, you know where we're at with each one of us in our journey towards you. And so we ask that you would feed us and that you would meet us where we're at. And that you would help us to see the beauty and the richness of your gospel in a deeper way this morning. Father, we believe and confess that your grace changes everything. Sometimes we don't believe that, but we ask, like the, like the father with the sick child, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Father, would your grace change us this morning, that we would reflect your son in a way that's more winsome, that's more holy, that's more beautiful to those who are watching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Esther chapter 4, and we're going to read through the whole chapter, and just to be honest, these are such fairly long chapters with lots of interesting names. In my flesh every week, these past three weeks, I've had this sense of when I finish reading the whole chapter, why are they not giving me a standing ovation? Because um, it's, it's hard reading this, I'm teasing with that, um, but stick with me as we read through the whole chapter, don't, don't, don't wander off. Esther chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathatch, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathatch went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, um, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and commanded her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathatch went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathatch and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All of the king's servants and the peoples of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these past 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For you keep silent at this time. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days or, or three days night, three days night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If you weren't here last week or if you're not necessarily familiar with uh, the book of Esther, in chapter 3, a gentleman by the name of Haman is promoted to be kind of the second man in charge or the first man in charge after King Ahasuerus. And uh, this man named Haman issues this decree that he wants everybody to bow down and worship him. And everybody did that except one man, and that was Mordecai. And so Haman was summoned to come in to deal with, with this man himself. And if you remember, I suggested that, that Haman had this long inbred hatred and bitterness towards the Jews because back towards the Exodus, it was God's people who were commanded through the king Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul refused to do that. And so these folks still continued. That nation continued to live and prosper. So Haman had it in and it had been nursing a grudge for years against the Jews. And so when it's said that, that Mordecai will not bow, he will not worship him because he is a Jew, Haman manipulates the king to issue a decree 11 months from now, 12 months from now, wipe out every living Jew in the world in its 127 provinces that you control. Kill, the text tells us, kill and annihilate old and young men and women and children. And so because as a result of that decree that was issued, Mordecai in this chapter, chapter 4, we see that he comes before the gate and he's in sackcloth and ashes. And the text tells us that he wept bitterly. There are three main characters in this chapter. Two we see, one we see ruling and governing and caring for in the shadows. But the first character that we see is Mordecai. And we see this snapshot of Mordecai where in Mordecai we see a man of action and great religious effort. In Mordecai we see a man of action and great religious effort. And and I want to say just at the beginning of this point that Mordecai, what he does in Esther chapter 4, in some level describes greatly the American church today. He's a man of action. He doesn't waste time. He immediately goes at his own peril to the king's gate and cries out and weeps bitterly aloud so that anybody near or present could hear him. And he wears sackcloth and ashes and he's fasting and he's mourning. He is a man of action. If you're a movie watcher or a TV watcher, 
Mordecai is like the man who is the police officer who shows up. He's the first one on the scene, and there's somebody inside with a gun, and they're holding him hostage, and he receives via the, the uh, help me out here, the little walkie-talkie or whatever it is, wait for backup. Don't you run in there by yourself. Don't you be a hero on your own. Wait for backup. And Mordecai is a man of great action. And instead of, like some of us, instead of running away and hiding, Mordecai goes right to the king's gates. And he lets everybody know in the city of Susa that he is mourning greatly for this decree that has been issued. I don't know about you, but I probably would have turned tail and ran. I'd have packed my things, grabbed my family, and I would have taken off. And so on some level, we see something here in Mordecai that is just absolutely beautiful. It's inspiring. It should warm our hearts. We should want to be religiously, spiritually, on some level, like Mordecai. But I I hope you notice that something's missing in this passage. Something is not being said in the passage that allows us only to describe Mordecai, at least for chapter 4, that he was a man of great action and great courage. Here's a secret. If you want to learn how to preach or teach, two things. This is what Steve Brown told us in class years ago at RTS. Pay attention to what the text says. Look at every word. Dissect every word. Look at it. Pay attention to what it said. And then equally as true, and some of you have already finished the sentence in your head, pay attention to what the text doesn't say. If you, if you knew that, you get to come up next week and preach. You're, you're on your way. Pay attention to what the text doesn't say. And we see in this chapter that Mordecai is a man who's, who's weeping aloud bitterly. <clears throat> Have you ever heard somebody do that? Somebody, I've seen it in, in person once or twice. You see it on television or on the movie screen all the time where there's been an accident and somebody passes away or something, and a close family member just lets out this uncontrollable, bitter, loud heart cry. And that's what Mordecai does. And he's fasting, so it seems, it seems religious and it seems spiritual, and he's going through all of the right motions, but something deeply is missing. What is that? What the text doesn't tell us is that Mordecai turns his face towards God. He confesses his sins, the sins of his people, and he prays. And he pleads on behalf of his father. We see two other, they're, they're multiple, and I wish I could go through all of them, but there are a couple other examples that I just want to look at quickly in the book of Jonah Jonah chapter 3, we see this pagan people with a pagan king. And, and uh, Jonah goes to them. He doesn't want to, but God forces him and he goes. In verse 5, And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Very similar to what Mordecai has done. But these pagans who didn't grow up learning the law of God, learning the Torah, learning the scriptures, were told in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Isn't that a beautiful phrase? The king who's this pagan king, who knows? Let's engage in running towards this God whom we just learned about. Let's run to him. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You have God's people, his chosen nation, who are still in Babylon because they didn't listen to God. They were taken away into captivity. Uh, Jerusalem was ransacked. It was destroyed. The temple was annihilated. They're living in captivity. But the prophets tell them, you're only going to be there for 70 years. And then, and then the king, is a pagan king, is going to issue a decree and send you back home. And we're told by historians that thousands went back home, but millions of them stayed. Life was too good and too comfortable, and they stayed. They were living in disobedience and defiance to what God had called them to do. And then they get this decree that's issued. It's going to wipe them all out. And Mordecai responds by doing everything right, except what? There's no mention in the text, and this is intentional, There's no mention in the text of him crying out, confessing his sin and the sin of his people, acknowledging we deserve, we deserve that decree. But God, who knows, would you relent and and, um, save us anyways? He only got it half right. And if we were God... We'd leave him there, wouldn't we? We would leave him in the sackcloth and ashes, and we would remind him, you got most of it right. And then we as parents who say this so often, or as friends, we would say what? You got most of it right, but (laughs) you didn't turn to me. You didn't confess your sin. You didn't cry out. You didn't pray. You wept aloud bitterly, but you didn't, you didn't pray. And we would deserve all of that. Remember how I began this? If you're someone who more often gets it wrong than get it right, there's good news. Because if you know the end of the story in Esther, God doesn't leave them in that position. God doesn't come and chastise Mordecai. He doesn't come and say, You got it half right, so you're only getting half a blessing. Quid pro quo. I I want you to think and just ruminate on that for a second. Uh, 
Write this down if you're a note taker. We're not going to take time to read this, but go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 verses 3, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9 verses 3 through 10. Daniel 9, 3 through 10, and read that later on your own. And it's another beautiful example of what God shows us. This is how I want my people to turn to me in their distress, in their sinfulness. The book of Jonah, the book of Daniel, we see these two beautiful examples. And in Esther, it's missing. I want you to know that all week long, I have been convinced uh, in a deeper way that, that I am Mordecai. There was a TV show years and years ago that I believe Regis Philbin started it. And it was called, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And they had these three lifelines, and one of them was called Phone a Friend. And I, I stand guilty before you that I am so much quicker as we see what Mordecai does here. Phone a friend. I need your help. Come bail me out. Come save me. Come help me. You have the ability to fix what I... Versus running to our true king. We see what Mordecai does. He phones a friend. And so the the second snapshot that we see here, the second person in this story, we see in Esther a woman of great courage and great leadership. And I wish we could say more about Esther. But with just this particular chapter that we're looking at today, this is all we see as a woman of great courage and leadership. Certainly someone for us to, to emulate and to model. But just like there was something missing in Mordecai's story, there's something missing in Esther's story. Esther hears about this, that her adopted father slash cousin that she loves dearly, because in chapter 1 and chapter 2 we see repeatedly that she was a person who was loyal and listened to her adopted father Mordecai. And she hears that he's gone a little crazy and he's wailing publicly and he's covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. And so her first response is to put together a care package and send it out to him and tell him to put on some different clothes. Stop wearing what you're wearing. Stop doing this. That's her first response, which is often our first response. I don't care what's going on inside you. Just clean it up right now. It's kind of like the parent who says, boy, I need to deal with your heart, but right now I'm going to deal with your butt. (laughs) And we'll get to the heart later. And Mordecai is is angered at that prospect. And so he sends back word to her, um, this is what's happened. Have you not heard that, that your people, our people are going to be annihilated? Do something about it. And so she sends back hat hatch her, one of her eunuchs pleading with him, desiring to learn more from him, why and what. And Mordecai again sends back word, and I'm, I'm trying to speed this up a little bit. Again, he sends back word to his daughter, a command. Go before the king. Go, go, go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of your people. He's phoning a friend. And it, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but it is, it's an insufficient thing if it's the only thing that we do. 
And so he's pleading with her, go before the king. And she issues word back again one more time as this reminder, you know my father, that if I go before the king, that I am to be lawfully killed. Unless he shows kindness to me and he reaches out and he extends his favor. And she, she then throws in this interesting part, reminding him, if I go before the king, I'm to be killed. And oh, by the way, the king hasn't summoned me into his presence for 30 days. I haven't even seen my husband, the king. Make no mistake that for 30 days, King Xerxes, King Ahuseras, he was not sleeping alone in his bed. Remember, he had just had a few years earlier, one after another for 12 months, ushered into his bedroom for him to try out until he settled on, on Esther and named her the queen. And so for 30 days, Esther is off in her own quarters, living with the reality that her beloved husband, this pagan king, is with another woman. And her adoptive father is saying, I want you to go before that man and plead our case. And after several back and forths, she agrees to do it. It's these beautiful words that we read in verse 13 and 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace that you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's reminding her gently, Esther, you've been placed there for a reason. And now that reason is abundantly clear. You're going to be used to save us. And we see this unbelievable courage in leadership where she says in verse 16, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. We have this beautiful benefit of looking back and we know the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey said, we already know. She didn't when she ushered those words. She had no clue what was going to take place. Modeling, demonstrating, emulating for us this unbelievable courage in leadership in the midst of this probably confusion and anger of this husband who's been with other women for the past month. And I haven't even seen him. I'm going to go into his presence and I'm going to do the right thing for my people. But again, if you pay attention to what's not written, there's something missing in the story. There's something missing in Esther's response. Um, Again, write this down. I'm not going to read all of this. But in Nehemiah, who's in this similar situation, Nehemiah responds, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept And I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he just goes on to continue to confess his sins and his people as he's communing with God. I started to earlier, I want to continue my confession. This week, God has exposed in my heart where I do all of the right things, but I so little just stop and pause and have this intentional time of, God, it's just going to be you and me and nothing else. I, I, I've, I probably, like you, have developed the habit of, I'm just going to pray while I'm in the car driving. Or I'm going to, and, and we multitask. <laughs> and just think for a second, when Deb multitasks me, I, stop it. <laughs> and God says, that, but that's what you're doing to me. I'm absolutely convinced that to take a, just a few minutes of silence and just go before the presence and the throne of our, of our God and our King and just having this one-on-one prayer dialogue conversation, yet yeah, we're, like, we're like Esther and we're like Mordecai. I'm going to do everything else but... Remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon. If you are someone who gets it wrong more than you often than you get it right, there's good news. If you're listening here and if you're already familiar with the story and you know that I'm Mordecai, I'm Esther, I demonstrate like Superman, put the big S on my chest, I'm here to save the day and if I perish, I perish. And God's gently reminding us, I I want more than that from you. I may choose to use you to save other people, but that's not what it's about. And so we see this third snapshot of a third character who's not mentioned in the text, but he's ruling from the shadows. And so we see Mordecai, we see Esther, then we also see in Jesus, we see our true deliverer. We see the true Lamb of God. I came across a quote from a a lady by the name of Karen Job. I'm I'm not familiar with who her is, but I want to give her credit for it. And it just simply said this, seeing Esther as an example will crush us. But seeing Jesus as a redeemer will save us. Do you know how many people, including myself, we see this story and we say, I want to be just like Esther. I want to have that that bravado. I want to have that riding in on the white horse to here I am to save the day. I want to be the one who has it all together that people are going to fawn over. And so if you just see in this passage, and that's it, that Esther is a great example for us, you will end up crushed Because you will, as you've demonstrated in the past, as I've demonstrated in the past, we're going to fail miserably. And we see in this person of Jesus, who's not just an example, but he's the one, the Lamb of God, who actually does save us. When I was a a teenager in um, student ministries, I think I was in 10th or 11th grade, and our youth leaders 
We didn't have a youth pastor at that time, so we had these volunteer youth leaders, and somebody asked a question, and they wanted us, all the high school students, go around one by one and give us, their, give us your answer. And the question was something to the effect of, if persecution hits our city today and you are dragged into the court, are you going to stand up for Jesus? Or what, what are you going to do? And student after student after student said, yes, I will die. And they got to me, I'm such a weenie chicken. And I said, I will deny him and then run as fast as I could. And about 15 years later, one of those youth leaders saw me as I've already been in ministry, and he said to me, do you remember years and years ago when you said, and everybody laughed at you, and everybody thought you were joking, but I knew you meant it. And then he said, do you know it was at that moment that God's spirit whispered into my ear, he's going to go into ministry. I knew it at that moment. <laughs> Guys, you, we're, we're not Esther, we're not Mordecai. We see the beauty of our Savior in the story. He's the one who comes to us. He's the one who doesn't say, he did not say, if I perish, I perish. Instead, Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Savior, said, when I perish, I will perish and I will die on your behalf. Because what you can't do and what you don't want to do, I'm going to do it for you. And we see the beauty of this in Philippians chapter 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't go to Calvary crossing his fingers, hoping beyond hope that this doesn't happen. I hope I'm spared. I hope I'm spared. Now, he did utter the words, Jesus, or Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will, which we saw a picture, a glimpse of the humanness in him, but in his divinity, he went. I must do my Father's will. And so he goes on our behalf because we're not like Esther, with all the bravado. We want to be. And at times we may exude a little bit of that. But don't put your hope in that. Put your hope in the fact that Jesus said, what you can't do, I'm going to do for you. We have this beautiful uh, model in what Jesus does for us. He's our security. He's our value. He's our worth. We can risk the palace... We can risk positions, you can risk connections, you can risk careers and riches, because in Christ we are truly free. Go back to Esther just a second. You remember how she went back and forth in this conversation with her father. But, 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 you do remember this, and you do know the law says this. And the truth is, you and I, we engage in all of that when we're dealing with our non-Christian friends and we're reminded this beautiful truth within Scripture because Jesus is the one who went on our behalf. You are free. You're not tied to that relationship, that job, that position, that prestige. 
You're not tied to any of that. And if you lose it, that's okay. Because where you are right now, every single one of us, God has us where, where we're at for a reason. And maybe even Lord willing for such a time as this. Here's this beauty of the, 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 the beautiful tension of the gospel. We live in this, this world and this, this reality of already but not yet. God's already started to do his work in me, but he's got so much more to do. This already, but then there's so much more to come. And so we live in this tension of God, apart from your grace, I'm lost. And then immediately remind yourself, but his grace has been sufficient. And so when I am the person who gets it wrong more than I get it right, I'm the person who goes through the religious outward actions and effort, but my heart isn't communing with the Lord. God comes in with this abundance of grace. We don't, we don't see it in this chapter, but you, you know the story. It's coming. God delivers his people, not partially, not according in, or to the measure of which they were faithful. He blesses them abundantly because he loves them as his children. And if you are in Christ, he, he looks at you the same way. You are his son, his daughter. Um, I, I have several points of application. We're not, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to run through this list quickly. And it's all around this centered of, uh, I, I want to, as a, as a church culture, and this is because of my own journey of what God's doing in me, I want to be a man of God who knows what it is to experience fasting. And, and to do it right, where, we, where I use my time of fasting for communing with the Lord. As, as much as I have in reserve here, I can go out a meal or two and I don't have to pray. I can skip a meal and stay busy. It isn't until day three after hibernation where I start to really, really feel hungry. Now, I want to eat the whole time. Daniel Doriani, uh, a pastor in our denomination, gives us six things. Come talk to me later. Email me if you want more information on this. He tells us to fast regularly. And he says this because, because Jesus says when you fast, not if, but when you fast. He then tells us fast prayerfully. And, and isn't it funny that we have as children, we have to be reminded of that. And I experienced it this week. I attempted some fasting this week because of knowing the sermon I'm preaching, knowing the points of application. And I'm telling you, I went through many meals this week where I didn't eat, but I stayed busy and I didn't pray. So if you fast regularly, fast prayerfully. Thirdly, fast secretly. And then fourthly, but also fast corporately with others. Do it in secret. Do it in a sense that your heart and your spirit says, I, I'm not doing this because I want the, the accolades from my friends and my family. I don't want to walk around, look at me, look at me. Do it privately, but also do it with others. Uh, fifthly, fast humbly. Go before the Father with a sense of 
confession and repentance. God, fill me. And then lastly, he says, fast creatively. Um, I think I've shared this before, but I have an uncle who for years when I was younger, once a year he would fast for 40 days. 40 days. And he had to get creative. He chose not to eat any food for 40 days, but he had to take lots of supplements or, or every once in a while did, because the doctor forced him, he would drink some protein shakes or something. If you're diabetic, you, whatever it is, you, you figure out what your heart craves and lusts for and set that aside. For some of you, it's not food. For some of you, it's shopping. For some of you, it's laziness. For some of you, you fill in the blank fast creatively. You figured out what, what you're wanting to put on the throne instead of Jesus and saying, God, with your help, I'm going to deny myself that. And God, as I do that, would you please open my eyes and help me to see you more clearly? Let me pray. Father, help us. Strengthen us. Change us. Grow us up. God, would you, through your tender, soft Holy Spirit, remind us of your abundant grace for people like us who get it wrong more than we get it right. Father, your mercies are new every day. Help us to believe that. In your name we pray. Amen.